wow, such a clean, easy passage. This is going to be so encouraging. Hey, uh, if we haven't met, my name is Austin, one of the pastors here. Hey, uh, how many of you guys love the feeling of getting rid of unnecessary things. Like just by show of hands, like how many of you are like, that is the best feeling ever, right? Like the crazy satisfying uh, reward of clearing space out uh, by like doing a garage sale or something, I don't know, or just donating things away, just getting rid of it, it's simplifying it. Uh, My wife, Kristen, uh, did a garage sale recently and um, we have three kids. Gracie is four, Haddon is two, and Eden is nine months. She's so cute. Uh, But we have uh, a ridiculous amount of uh, toys that take up so much space but we never use. We have a ridiculous amount of clothes and my wife and I think that we might be done after three. We're seeing what God does, but we're like, I think we might slow down. You know, we went like boom, 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 you know, like, okay. And so we're thinking like, we could probably get rid of these baby clothes, right? Like we think we're done or these, you know, the toys. And so um, we're kind of going through it. And uh, Kristen like walked me through like the garage and these piles she made and stuff. And the main question we were asking is like, can, can we get rid of this or will we regret it? Um, and are, are we going to need this again? So it was baby stuff, but it's also just like random stuff. So baby clothes and t- like all of it and toys, gone, right? Random artwork that we received from our wedding as a gift, definitely gone, okay? Uh, um, and God bless whoever gave it to us, right? Um, uh, the George Foreman, like little grill that we never even used, like I sold it, you know what I mean? It was, it was, it was great. Um, um, but we kind of had this like uneasy fear in us of like, as things are leaving, like, are we going to need this again? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I just hope I don't regret selling that thing. I don't, hope I don't regret giving that box away, you know? True story, Mo and Colleen Dixon, who helped plant the church, uh, they thought they were done having kids after their daughter, Misha. And so they gave everything away, like all of it, you know, all the baby stuff, all the bottles, all whatever. And, um, and then two years later, they had their son, Hayes. And they were like, hey, so remember those, like, shoes we gave you for two-year-old? Like, can we have that? And we're like, yep. You know, and this is crazy. But that's kind of what I thought. Have you had a moment like that where you've given something away, that relieving feeling of, like, you know, clearing out space, but then regretted it because you needed it again? Um, realizing, like, oh, my gosh, I shouldn't have got rid of it in the first place. Unfortunately, this is often how we treat Jesus. See, our lives kind of like ebb and they flow. They fluctuate from good to better to bad to worse. Um, And when things get particularly unfortunate, we often turn to Jesus. And because he's a gracious God, he helps us, right? It's amazing. Um, But then we get convinced that we can do it on our own and that we can help ourselves. And so we get rid of them, like the dusty box of random stuff in our garage sale. Um, Or like the toad of baby toys when uh, our kids are grown, right? We just don't think we need him anymore. We think he's unnecessary. Maybe you don't go as far as like giving him away or donating him. Maybe you just like kind of package him up and put him in the garage um, to kind of collect dust until you need him for the next rainy day. But our verses today in Luke chapter 11 show us that we never stop needing Jesus. We never stop needing Jesus. We find that to use Jesus as a problem solver, life fixer, situation redeemer, we will actually end up worse than we started. So here's kind of the main point. We don't really have like, hey, here's my three points. They're alliterated, whatever. It's just one kind of bigger overarching point that we're all kind of building into as we clo- it was a week when we close it. But here it is, is that it's not enough to be rescued from Satan or repaired through self-help. We need to be reconciled to our Savior. Uh, It's not enough to be rescued from Satan. That's super significant. We'll talk about it. Or repaired through self-help, getting a little bit better. We need to be reconciled to our Savior. So let's jump in. Look at verses 14 through 20. 
Luke eleven fourteen through uh, 20. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the man had spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking uh, from him a sign from heaven. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay. Uh, so uh, easy to understand, so clear. If you haven't got an application from that, I'm just going to move on and read the rest. No, I'm kidding. No, I have to be honest. When I read this a couple weeks ago to start praying and prepping for this, I can't remember a time when I was supposed to preach a text and read the passage and was more confused than I was when I read this. I was like, what am I going to preach? Bob, give me your best insights. You know, like, like what do I do, right? Um, there's a ton going on, but I think, let me just simplify this. I think one of the first things we have to ask is who is Satan or who are demons and what do they want or what does he want, right? So let's just kind of answer that question. Who is Satan that he's talking about or demons? Short answer, Satan is a fallen angel. So we're going to run through some verses. Uh, Isaiah 14, 14 is talking about Satan and it says, you said in your heart, I will make myself like the most high. Ezekiel 28 verse 17 says, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor and I cast you to the ground. Earlier, Schuyler taught on Luke 10, verse 18, and said, Jesus actually says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And so, to clear that up, Satan had leadership in heaven as an angel. He had wisdom and he had beauty, but he forfeited it by wanting to become like God, which he could never do. And so God cast him down from heaven. And in our section, in Luke 11, verse 18, if you see that, it says, um, uh, and if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? So he was an angel in heaven. He had his heart grew proud and wanted to be like God. God sent him down from heaven. Um, and now Satan has a kingdom of his own. And then if you look in Revelation 12, it actually explains that when Satan uh, left heaven or was cast down from heaven, that a third of the angels were cast down with him. So that's what his army is made up of. Demons are other fallen angels roaming the earth, cast down from heaven, being led by their insidious leader, Satan. This demonic army has set up shop here on earth, and uh, demons actually show up around 20 times in the book of Luke. So Satan was the snake all the way back in Genesis 3 that lured Eve into doubting God and eating the forbidden fruit. John 8, 44 says that Satan is the father of lies. He is the truth twister, the good gift counterfeiter. And so that's kind of who he is. Well, what does he want in light of that? Uh, one main thing is that he wants glory, right? He wanted to be like God. He couldn't. He realized that was cast down. So now the next best thing is to attack that the glory that he couldn't get. And the way he would do that is through you. Like the way, like attacking what is most precious to God, right? So short answer, what does Satan want? He wants you. Have you ever heard that line? You can mess with me, but don't mess with my people, right? And I always love when like, like really sweet moms say that, you know, but I'm also like, I know they're really sweet, but mama bear can come out. Okay. So don't mess with her cubs. All right. Like it's a real thing, but there's that statement like, you can mess with me, do whatever you want to me, but do not touch the people I love. 
Don't hurt the people. I love my kids, my wife, my friends, my family, the people closest to me. And so how can Satan get to God? How can he offend God by attacking his beloved creation? By distracting his beloved children, those who've given their lives to Jesus. As a dad, nothing enrages my heart more than my kids being threatened or hurt or spoken down to. That's what Satan is doing to God, messing with what matters most to him, which is people. By leading us to sin, by blinding us from the gospel, by preventing us, er, preventing as many souls as he can from heaven. John 10.10 says that he came to steal and he came to steal or kill and destroy. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that he has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And if you look in verse 14, uh, knowing all of that, it says that Jesus meets a man that is possessed by a demon. And then with such subtlety, in the beginning of verse 14, it says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. It, it, it only... It's like, it almost has a tone of like, as he was raking his front lawn, you know, like just this easiness to it. Like Luke is communicating that however, you need to hear me, however strong you think Satan is, Jesus is stronger. However scary you think demons are, they're more afraid of Jesus. However confusing Satan is to us, him and his army are very clear on who Jesus is. And, and so if we're not careful in light of this conversation, we could fall into two different spectrums when it comes to anything uh, regarding our enemy uh, or Satan. So number one, two, two ways that we can fail. Number one is that we can underemphasize the presence of Satan. We can underemphasize the presence of Satan. So one of the reasons this was such a hard sermon for me to teach was because of this point. Like we just don't have a great theology or a biblical knowledge of who is Satan. Like, like and, and so I just think it's like, and am I clear in who exactly he is? And do we, and it's just not a very normal conversation for us to have because we have underemphasized the presence of Satan. So in our Western world in 2021, largely driven by science and what we can explain and see, we have largely underacknowledged um, that there's a kingdom of darkness that's against us. Some people are tempted to think that everything is demonic, right? That cough, uh, the accident, the car accident, the spider, cats. And let's be honest, like, yes, like that one is true. But the other ones, I don't know, right? Um, but not everything bad or unfortunate is demonic. Not everything bad or unfortunate is demonic. But some things are. Some things definitely are. And probably more than we think because of our culture and context we live in now, that we think nothing is and everything can be explained by science. I mean, look, so in our story, uh, in it's verse 14, it says that the, the man in our story was mute. And it says that Jesus, when he cast the demon out, the man could speak and everyone marveled. And so if that was happening in our current culture and someone was mute, our response would be to run tests, to find the best doctors, right? To fix it, to figure out what's wrong, to diagnose it, and then labor into something else. But none of that would have worked because he was possessed by a demon. His muteness wasn't because of any scientific reason, but just a spiritual reason of demonic possession, right? So demons have the ability to possess people, to influence, to sway, to convince, to condemn, to deceive, to tempt, to discourage, to oppress. And so we can't just collectively assume that Satan is on vacation right now, and that his army is dormant, taking a break. They're active, they're hungry, they're passionate about attacking those that are most precious to God. They're resilient in preventing people from seeing the beauty of the gospel. And so if we err on this side and we underemphasize the presence of Satan, we will be perpetually blindsided 
um, under attack constantly while we think we're eating brunch on vacation, right? The enemy is real and they want us. The other side that we can spend on, so number one, underemphasizing the presence. The other spe- uh, spectrum that we don't want to fall on is we can overemphasize the power of Satan. We can overemphasize the power of Satan. So any football fans uh, probably know last Saturday, uh, Texas A&M did the unthinkable. Okay, Um, if you're a Texas A&M fan and you doubt that God is real, we need to have a conversation, okay? Texas A&M beat the number one football team, Alabama, with a last-second field goal. It was amazing, right? It was unreal. Alabama went undefeated last year, and they were set to be undefeated this year as well. Um, But they got upset by Texas A&M. And I think this is kind of how we feel about God and Satan sometimes, like, obviously, God's Alabama, right? He, he, he's, he's, um, he's strong, and he's amazing, and he's set to be undefeated. But, I mean, I guess every once in a while, in a blue moon, Satan might be like Texas A&M and pull off an upset. Like, may, maybe. maybe. It doesn't happen much, but it, it actually could happen. And I'm here to tell you, the Bible is extremely clear. Satan is a dog on a leash. Like, he's a puny gnat compared to the lion of our God. If God is the Alabama football team, uh, Satan is a demonic army, R-O-Y-M-C-A team of six-year-olds, okay? There is no struggle. There is no wondering. There is no concern. God is infinitely stronger, and Jesus proves this point. Look at verses 21 and 22. Back in our text, 21 and 22. Now, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own place, his goods are safe. Um, palace, but when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So the strong man uh, guarding his uh, house is Satan. And so Jesus acknowledges Satan's strength. He says he is strong. So significant to know he doesn't underemphasize that. Um, But then in verse 22, Jesus is talking about himself right here. It's kind of amazing. And he goes, when one stronger comes, he attacks and overcomes and takes away his armor. Jesus is saying, don't doubt. Don't worry for a second. I am stronger. Oh, and by the way, if that weren't enough, Revelation 20 says that Satan and his demonic army will be cast away forevermore. Finally and ultimately defeated, their end is inevitable. But their efforts today are just a swing on their way down. That's what's happening in the here and now. The already, but not that yet. The inevitable, they're gone, but they're trying to do as much as they can on their way down. Don't overestimate Satan. Jesus is stronger. If we overestimate the demonic powers, we fall into perpetual fear, but we don't have to do that because Jesus is stronger. But then look how he follows it. It's so unique. Like you're you're building this case out and you're looking at the verses and it's like, this feels like a weird thing to say at the end of this. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. Whoever isn't with me is against me. Um, So just some explanation of what happened just briefly earlier. When when Jesus rebukes the demon from the mute man, uh, the people around him try to credit this miracle um, to another, uh, to Beelzebul, right? This other prince of demons. So they basically say, Jesus, I know you did that, but it really wasn't your power that was doing it. You were tapping into this other demon, Beelzebul, and he cast him out. Jesus goes, listen, listen, that makes zero sense. Do you really think that Satan in the kingdom of darkness, would use one demon to cast another demon out. 
Like, like civil war isn't a good idea. Like inner conflict is not healthy for your organization. No way. He's saying Satan has his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. I have my kingdom, the kingdom of light. And those two are going against each other. And in this moment, I flexed my power and I beat them. So don't credit it to them. Like that, Jesus is saying it was my kingdom. I'm the stronger one. I did it. Don't try to mistake the credit. And then after Jesus says this about the difference of the kingdoms, these, like there's dark light, right? He says, um, if you're not with me, you're against me. So there's two kingdoms. If you're not with me, you're against me. Um, and I, w- I want to say, here's why this matters. This is so crucial in the point of the sermon. There is no such thing as spiritual Switzerland. There is no such thing as spiritual Switzerland. Neutrality is make-believe. You, you, you are not neutral with Jesus. Wherever you come in spiritually right now, I want to let you know you are not neutral with him. You are either led by God or you are led by Satan. And this is like touchy, but I'm trying to do it as gentle as I can. I also want to be clear. God is your adoptive father through faith in Jesus, or Satan is your inherited father through sin. And so sin is rebellion against God's righteous leadership. That's what sin is. And Satan rebelled against God and suffered judgment. And so we, like Satan, in and of ourselves, are rebels. We don't want to be ruled over by God. We want to rule our own lives. We want to make our own rules. We want to do our own thing. That's why when push comes to shove and God's word and kind of pushes in on what we're trying to do or it convicts us, we run away and we do our own thing. We, and so we bear the family resemblance of rebelliousness like Satan. You get what I'm saying? So in John 8, Jesus pulls this to head very objectively and says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So catch this, by default, without Jesus interceding into our lives, we are all in allegiance to the devil. Which makes us want to push back, right? Like, don't say that. Like, that's not okay. Like, hold on. I may not be a Christian, but I'm not a Satanist. Like, how dare you say that I'm in allegiance to the devil, right? Um, Worldwide, of the nearly 8 billion people on the world now, only 4,000 people clearly say that their allegiance is to the devil. There's 4,000 of the 8 billion that say, yep, that's me. I'm on the kingdom of darkness's side. That's, that's them, 4,000, okay? But hold on, there are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Jesus says if you're not with him, you're, you're against him. And so um, of the nearly 8 billion people in the world, there are about 2.5 billion they give allegiance to Jesus saying that he's their Lord and Savior. So hold on, Jesus. I know that sounds like a lot of people, but at the same time, are you actually saying that the five plus billion people that aren't saying you're their Lord and Savior are committed to Satan? That their allegiance is to the kingdom of darkness? I mean, that's just, and to make it more personal, does that mean for those of you in the room who haven't decided what you think about Jesus, that he's saying that your allegiance is to the kingdom of the darkness, a kingdom of darkness? Now, gently and graciously, I have to say, I do believe that's what he's saying. Because it's there. And I wish I could twist it and make it feel better. I just can't. That's just what he says is hard to swallow. But this is so important for us to understand. Listen, Satan invented Islam. Satan invented Buddhism and Hinduism and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and any other religion and any other worldview that distorts the gospel. 
Anything that counters Jesus' statement in John 14, 6, that he's the way and that he's the truth and that he's the life, anything that promises there's another way to peace, another way to heaven, another God that deserves our affection, another equation for our fulfillment, that's all invented by Satan. That's all of his work. Do you understand what I'm saying? That we have this like Hollywood version of Satan where he has red skin and a pitchfork and some horns, but he's far more subtle than that. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says that he disguises himself as an angel of light. He looks appealing. He looks attractive. If he was so repulsive, we wouldn't follow him. If you've seen the movie The Exorcist, which I hope you haven't because it's sketchy and it made me not sleep for years, but that has, that has, that has distorted our view of what demonic possession looks like. And yes, sometimes it is overt, and it is scary, and it is obvious, and we have biblical accounts of like that, like the garrison demoniac. But it's also sometimes subtle and simple, like the man in our story who was just mute. You have to understand that Satan's kingdom expression doesn't just show up in a tiny group of 4,000 people who say, I worship Satan. Are you serious? You think this, these two kingdoms, that's all that Satan has? There's no way. It's way more subtle than that. Islam is demonic. Buddhism is demonic. The American dream is demonic if it is aiming to convince us that our deepest satisfaction could be found with having two kids and a nice house and a corner office. You get what I'm saying? And this is stepping on toes, but if you're not with Jesus, you're against him. And Satan is going to find the easiest, most subtle ways to be against him while thinking that you're not really against him. And so it doesn't matter if you're the nicest person I've ever met. It doesn't matter if we love each other and I admire you. It doesn't matter if you've committed your life to helping your community and your friends. It doesn't even matter if you think Jesus is a good guy or that you agree with him or that you're here now. It matters. All that matters is that you've submitted your life to him. That, that, that you have stepped down from the throne of your life and invited Jesus onto it. That you've handed over the keys to your little kingdom and said, Jesus, I'm all yours if you've allowed his radical grace to capture your rebellious heart. There is no such thing as spiritual Switzerland. Neutrality is make-believe. You're either with him or you're against him. And so why does all of that matter? Like to understand who Satan is and that, that, he, that he's after us and he wants us to understand um, uh, that, that demons are, are real and there's a real battle for our souls going on and that Jesus is stronger and that, um, that, that neutrality is make-believe, that you, you're either for him or against him. Why does it matter? Because look in verse 24 and 20 through 26. This is why it matters. It said, when the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and it brings seven other more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. The hardest, you know, verse in here probably as well is the last state of the person is worse um, than, than the first. And so Jesus rebukes the demon, right? It leaves. It, he, he's explaining what's happening. And it roams around trying to find another place to rest. It's important to know that demons always want to be possessing something. Um, it, it's like they're like a virus that need a host. And so for some reason, the demon doesn't find a place to rest or a person to possess. And so he comes back to the house. Now, remember how the demon originally got kicked out? By the strong man, Jesus. 
And so he's, he pictures the demon like coming up like a little bit scared and he peeks in through the front window and looks into the dining room, into the kitchen. And to his surprise, the house is clean and it's tidy. I mean, dude turned his life around. What an amazing testimony, right? At one time, he was, he was a demon-possessed dude who couldn't talk, and he was probably a social outcast. And now he's on an episode of Fixer Upper with Chip and Joe, right? He, it's organized, it's updated, it's fresh, and it's clean. But catch this. Remember that stronger man who kicked the demon out? He's nowhere to be found. All the demon finds is shiplap and granite countertops and Edison bulbs and a fresh coat of paint. But no Jesus. And so he goes. And he gets seven of his demon friends, and they come back to the freedman. And verse 26 says, the last state is worse than the first. He makes a mess of this man's life again, and even worse. This is a picture of the person who has used Jesus to fix something. Someone who's hired Jesus as a proverbial plumber to repair the leak in their life. But Jesus is wanting to make his home in your life. Not just stop by every once in a while. Jesus isn't a bodyguard that you hire when you're particularly afraid of danger. And when the threat is gone, you let him leave. No, see, when I was 11 years old, um, I uh, got in, in trouble, got caught vandalizing a school with a close friend of mine. And I had no idea how serious it was, but we got in big trouble. And I had to do over 100 hours of community service. And my mom, bless her heart, elected for me to do it as church. Maybe like they could fix me up, right? I was reluctant because my view was that church was for good people. And clearly I'm not a good person, so I'm not going to fit in and I'm going to hate it. But those people preached the gospel to me. They told me that Jesus was perfect for me, that he died for my sins, that he wasn't waiting for me to get my life together, but he was pursuing me in my mess, And so in the moment of weakness, when I was vastly aware of how bad I needed forgiveness, I made a decision to raise my hand and accept this free gift of forgiveness um, in Jesus. I wanted out of hell and into heaven. I wanted the guilt to be off of me, and um, they offered me Jesus. And so I did that. Um, Big moment, right? 11 years old. And then I go to junior high and then high school. And to be honest, I just didn't think I needed Jesus anymore. Like, I was accomplished in sports, I was popular in school, I was fixed up, and no one knew about my criminal past. I, um, I had incredible friends and a great job and a cool car, and I was a lot like this man in the story. My life was clean and my life was tidy. Um, updated and impressive, but Satan saw that the Jesus that rescued me was now nowhere to be found because I had progressively pushed him out of my life, thinking that I didn't need him anymore. And Satan came after me hard, particularly in the area of lust. And so I was addicted to pornography. I was seeking fulfillment through relationships with women. I was hiding and faking that everything was okay. I was deeply unsatisfied, anxiously searching for the next achievement, the next girl, the next highlight that would finally make me happy. And let me say this, pornography is deeply demonic. Um, like, I just think we play with it, and it's, it's just so frustrating. It has affected nearly everyone I know at some level, whether it's been a direct personal addiction, or it's been a short stint of personal exploration, or it's a spouse or significant other who is struggling with it, or it's abuse because of the culture that pornography has set in our world around sex. It is deeply demonic. Don't mess with it, right? But that, that's some of my story, but maybe you resonate with that the general framework of the story, that you had a season where you felt like you needed Jesus and he rescued you. And then you, he's freed you, and then you slowly drifted from him. Grateful that he helped you, but 
but then not really needing him now. And so you work to repair yourself, to rebuild yourself, and you did, and it was awesome to fix whatever problems you had. And it all seemed great, but then it got worse. It got worse than ever. You found yourself more enslaved, more broken, more messed up than before. How did that happen? What went wrong? This, this is kind of answering some of that question. So I just want to say this. People that I look up to differ on what this passage means and what the main point. They theologically differ on what this lands on. And so one uh, group of people believe that this man that we're talking about was a follower of Jesus. And this story um, warns against demonic oppression of Christians, indicating that the deep impact that demons can still have on Christians today once they've accepted Jesus. Some believe that this man had a momentous interaction with Jesus, but was never actually saved. Um, that Jesus kicked out Satan from the man, but never invited Jesus in. And I'm personally convinced of that second conclusion, that this man had an emotional experience with Jesus, but never actually bowed his knee to Jesus' lordship. And here's why. If you look back to that key verse in the end of 26, it says the last state of that person is worse than the first. Um, if you've accepted Jesus... And it doesn't matter if you are deep in sin. Your current state is better than your first. Right? Like, like there, and, and, and I'm not saying, I think it's so dangerous for us to justify our justification by our sanctification. I think it's dangerous for us to be like, well, are you saved or are you not? You know, are you reading your Bible every day? Or not? Like, I don't think, like, I think Jesus' justification is, is enough. Like, it's, it, he, he saves however people struggle, we fail, we falter, all that stuff. But there is some level of progressive transformation in our lives, and there's some reality, even if it's minor and it's so small, that the, the, la, the latter state is better than the first. So if you can't look back to your life and go, man, I think Jesus changed me, but I'm, I'm way worse off now than I was back then, I'd probably say, like, you might not have, Jesus might not have really transformed your life, or, like, you might not have really known him. And I'm not saying that you're behaviorally, like, way better or anything, but if you could say, my life is worse now than it was before, it's like, I don't know if you really met Jesus. And I think that's what happened in this story. And, 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 and so this man got freed, but he didn't get filled. He, he got rescued, but he didn't get redeemed. And that, that was my story. And that might be some of our stories. At 11 years old, I made an emotional, shallow decision to raise my hand and say I'm a Christian because I wanted out of hell. But it never changed my life. And to be clear, just on the assurance of God's grace, Ephesians 1 verse 13 says that we are sealed when we're saved. And so if you're a Christian, Jesus lives inside of you, and you better believe no one can break in. You don't have to be afraid of that, right? You are held fast by the Father. You are sealed by the Spirit. You are wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus, right? That's your state. The Father's holding you. That's the amazing news of the gospel for people who've actually repented. So what does all of this show us? That it isn't enough to be rescued from Satan or repaired through self-help. We need to be reconciled to our Savior, we need to be brought into right relationship with Jesus. What does this show us? That freedom in and of itself is not our end goal. That being fixed isn't our ultimate hope. It's being filled with God's spirit. We think that we just um, need to get over being inhibited spiritually. But the truth is we need to be inhabited spiritually. We need God to make his home in us. Like so many of us think the invitation for Christianity is to let Jesus help you and then go help yourself. But it's not. And so I think that there are just two ways that we can go wrong with this. Um, 
to kind of like make this applicable and practical to kind of find yourself on it. Number one, we can try to release Jesus after the rescue. We can try to release Jesus after the rescue. And we are all tempted by this. Like, hey, now I'm free. That's awesome. Thanks, Jesus. I should be good now. If I need you, I'll holler, okay? I'll reach out. Many of us are tempted to use Jesus as a contract employee on retainer, but no, he's a moment-by-moment friend. There for every minute. We don't have to schedule time with him to come over. He lives within us. He hears our every prayer. He's there for the memorable and the mundane, the highlights and the heartache. That's who he is. And by the way, in this story, there's just a strong man, the demon, and a stronger man, Jesus. But there is no mention of you and your ability to fight. They're not even a pity mention of like, yeah, he really, you know, he tried his best and went one round. No, because you're hopeless to fight against the kingdom of darkness on your own. You're hopeless to fight without Jesus. You lose every time. You don't just need to be rescued once. You need to be rescued daily from yourself, from Satan, from sin, into his grace, to be reminded of his grace, to be held by the Father, to be filled by the Spirit. Don't release him after the rescue. Keep relying on him. That's the first way you can go wrong, is release Jesus after the rescue. The second way is to replace Jesus with repair. Replace Jesus with repair. So there is a poison uh, that is seeping into Christianity today, and it's called self-help. Um, and I want to be careful when I talk about this, but I'm saying that motiv- motivational speakers disguised as preachers of God's word, where we're more compelled to pick up a self-help book than our Bible. And the point of these books aren't to exalt Jesus or to expand your mind to the glorious gospel, or to examine your own personal dependence on God's spirit. It's simply to give you tools to live a better life. And I want to be clear, I love tips and, trips on how, tips and tricks on how to live a better life. I hope we all do. Have a better diet, right? Like minimalize your stuff, like the, all, you know, organize, all, I'm all for those things. But if we're blending those into what Christianity is, you've totally replaced Jesus with repair. And we think that the point of Christianity is to be reformed, to be better, to get our lives on track. That's not why Jesus died to help you incrementally live a better life. And so by pursuing this watered-down version of Christianity called self-help, we've replaced Jesus and relied on our own selves as the hero of our story to implement these new ways to live. And what does all of this lead to? By replacing Jesus after the rescue and replacing Jesus with repair, it leads to regret. It leads to regret every single time. The last state of that person is worse than the first. It is not enough to be rescued from Satan or repaired through self-help. We need to be reconciled to our Savior, to be brought by grace through faith, uh, to be brought in a right relationship with Jesus. So listen, it's not just the power of Christ setting the enemy out. It is the presence of Christ coming to live within and so uh, I remember as a teenager, my, my parents uh, went on a trip and they gave me a decision to stay home. And I was like, 100%, I want to stay home. I'm 16 years old, you know? So I was like, this is awesome. I'm like cooking a pizza. I'm kicking back. I'm hanging out, you know, I'm doing my thing. It was so fun until it got dark, okay? And then I started getting paranoid, okay? And I'm like, uh, and you know when you're like listening And it feels like when you listen, you can hear everything. And I'm like, I've never heard that noise before. But it's always been there because it's never been quiet, you know? And I'm like, oh. And so I'm like, you know, look, all the lights are on. I didn't turn the lights off the whole night. They stayed on. The kitchen, the front, everything. It was all on. And I go downstairs. I'm like, I don't know. That light's off. I don't think I did. And I'm like, I'm not going down there again. And I close the door, lock it, you know, put some, like, spoons at the bottom. So if anyone, you know, this whole thing. I checked every window. 
I checked every door, and I did it twice and maybe even three times, and I slept terrible that night. My dad came home in this, like, tough, macho 16-year-old. I thought I was like, that was terrible. And next time you invite me to that family reunion, I'm coming, okay? I ain't staying alone anymore. And uh, he's like, all right. But guess, guess what I didn't do that night they came home? I didn't lock the doors. And I didn't, I, didn't check, I didn't check the windows, and I didn't keep the lights on. I slept like a rock. Why? Because my dad was home. Why? Because he had it handled. Why? Because he's, he's my dad, and I'm his son. He's going he's gonna to figure out whatever needs to be figured out. Listen, if, if the inexhaustible grace of Jesus is broken into your life, if your hard heart has been melted by the warm affection of the Father, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus and been filled with the Spirit, you can rest like a child protected by your Father. He's got you covered. If you've invited him to live within you, not just contract, you, you can rest, you can enjoy, you can sleep like a rock. But if you haven't, it would be unloving for me not to warn you. You, you do have a reason to worry. But you don't have a reason to panic because Jesus really died and he really rose to really save broken sinners like you and me. And so come to Jesus, like today. Come to Jesus. Keep coming to Jesus, not to be fixed, but just to be loved and to be held. He is inviting you. Hear me say this. He's inviting you not into a temporary rescue or a superficial repair, but to an eternal relationship with him. Come to Jesus. Let's pray.